This is Chris and Eric's Long Box Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This week we are now in July. Uh, Marvel's Merry Mutants Month has officially wrapped up. So we are leaving the world of the X-Men to move to highly dramatic warfare with a bunch of gay people and conniving plots. So it's as if we've barely changed at all. We're going to be discussing Volume 1 of Ayakano's manga, Requiem of the Rose King. Uh, this is localized in the English release by Viz Media. We have Jocelyn Allen credited on translation with Sabrina Heap on lettering, uh, Fawn Lau on design, and then editor Joel Enos. Uh, Requiem of the Rose King originally ran in a Japanese manga magazine titled Monthly Princess Magazine. Uh, It's considered a shoujo work, meaning a manga aimed at girls and young women. Shoujo often gets stereotyped as just, like, wish-fulfillment romance comics, which, just to be clear, there's nothing wrong with those, and those get not enough respect for what they are because misogyny. But I think this is an example of how shoujo can be literally anything. And Rec Room of the Rose King is essentially, I'm going to say inspired by. It's not an adaptation. There's definitely too many things changed to necessarily be an adaptation. But there's heavy thematic rooting in the plays of Henry VI and Richard III depicting the War of the Roses period from 1940, not 1940s, from (laughs) the slightly different 1400s period in England, specifically centered around the conflict between the Houses of York and Houses of Lancaster, the War of the Roses being because each side had as its symbol either a red or a white rose. And yeah, this is historical war drama with our key point figure being the titular Richard III. This was your first time reading it. What's your history with Shakespeare and what did you think of your first taste of the series? So I'm one of those people who is very confused by why the fuck we read Shakespeare plays um, because they are play scripts and they should be performed. Generally I really like Shakespeare plays. Uh, I weirdly don't think I have ever seen or read any of the historical plays that Shakespeare wrote, though. For example, Henry the Fourth and Richard the Third. So this was, in terms of like what it's adapting, mostly new material to me. But I like I know a bit of the real history, and I've seen like other things that are riffing on the similar time period. Um, for example, the first season of the BBC sitcom Blackadder focuses on like an alternate version of these events very different tonally than this Uh, this fucking rules by the way i was very surprised when you started describing what shoujo is normally is because i'm like that no no this is an interesting complex work that's just like very i think we've both expressed a massive enjoyment of very shallow things with silly monsters in them so i am not gonna say that stuff that isn't written to be like complex and interesting is bad because that is absolutely not the fucking case but this is like any genre can have depth and this has a lot of depth yeah i did the sort of like genre introduction just to sort of like highlight that point of i think it's mainly a matter of just media for women getting put down largely by the worst aspects of any type of fandom and that extending into manga and anime fandom in this case where you know shoujo manga has a lot of romance a lot of character driven stuff and all of that is fun and fine and i don't think that deserves like to be scoffed at at all because i'm sure we'll get to some of the more archetypal what people think of when they think of shoujo sort of stuff later and that'll be fun too but just girls comics get a bad rep but as we see here this is great 
I suppose we can go ahead and dive into chapter one, essentially. Oh, actually, one note before we begin. Yeah. Uh, so this is, episode is, I believe, scheduled to come out on July 4th. So I would like to wish a very, very happy birthday to my cat, Burns. Happy birthday to Burns. Um, this is our July 4th episode. We are neglecting to celebrate America by instead reading a Japanese work about England. Because happy birthday, Burns. That is the main thing of note about this day. Yeah, it wasn't intentional. I just looked in the calendar and saw that was when this was happening to come out. And it was just like, that fits. Sure. It was going to wind up being this or Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. Either way, very patriotic choices for the timing. But anyway, uh, to go ahead and read the opening pages monologue. This red rose is Lancaster's. This white rose is York's. Let these be a symbol of their enmity. Will this rose wither in vain and join me in the ground? Or will it stay in full bloom until I reach the summit? One or the other. Dot dot dot. And just immediately introducing the warring factions and just the high drama. In terms of language, there are portions of dialogue in the book that are more or less lifted from Shakespeare. But, as I said, it's not a strict adaptation, it's not ward for ward, so everyone is very dramatic in their speech, but it's not, like, iambic pentameter that's so dense you need the, the uh, spark notes by you to understand it. It is the most accessible <laughs> Shakespeare can get, it's, essentially. It's also been translated, like, twice over, so I'm really not surprised that, like, stuff like the am iambic pentameter has been, like, dropped. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is a good point, because, like, when you put that into, like... There's the translation of the play into Japanese, then the changes of the dialogue made by the Japanese author, and then the translation into English, which is going to cause even more changes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is not, like, a straight-up adaptation of the play's dialogue. And I would say the similarities between the original Shakespeare works and the comic are in that the characters in their central conflicts, we have, like, the characters all have counterparts in the plays. And then much of the central conflict is very similar. But there are also pivotal and specific aspects in which they differ specifically with regard to Richard, which I'm going to wait for a minute to jump into all of that until a specific moment in the plots. But after that opening narration, we get our chapter one titular two-page spread, which is just our first glimpse of Richard in the comic, seated upon a throne, surrounded by all of these rose vines. And it's just high drama and a good introduction to... Kano's style, where we have, for reasons we'll get into, there's a specter looming over Richard of other characters referring to him as demonic, and he has this very dark hair, dark sunken eyes, very serious expressions oftentimes, generally wears all black, like long cloaks and such, and his personal armor is not like any other characters in either army, he usually has this, like, claw apparatus on his hand that's just very high drama and not really explained why it's so different from everyone else's, but even visually, he immediately has a slightly more monstrous touch, and it's just very cool looking. He's very gothy, in a good way. Yeah, and then, like, all of the vegetation around him is just sort of immediately doing this like violent beauty of here are all of these luscious blooming roses but then all the vines are very specifically formed and it's just high drama it's just fun to look at i will note this is a black and white comic and then we've got the red roses and the white roses and um the red roses when they show up are just like very dark colors so that you can tell them apart from the white and it's it's done well enough but i just think it's very funny that we've got like this the red is such an important color but we can't see it just because of, like, the nature of this medium. Yeah. 
which in the original production at least like some pages generally the like chapter title pages would often have like ran in color in the magazine just for like those parts but yeah as the whole it is the black and white comic where you just kind of shade the color difference after this uh opening monologue we move to a discussion between Sicily who is the mother and she is talking to one of her children specifically George um I suppose I'll just go ahead and lay out the basic main family structure we have King Richard II is not the king at the start of the story but has more of a sort of blood right to it than King Henry who has essentially usurped it in a way then we have his wife Sicily and they have three children Edward is the oldest we have George in the middle and then Richard III is the youngest of the family and we open with Sicily speaking to George there's a witch deep in the forest which is why you mustn't go there by yourself mother what's a witch is that like Joan of Arc I suppose so that devil was punished for the sin of dressing like a man. And besides just... I love every page of this and how dramatic every line of dialogue is. Like the way it's all framed with just these dark clouds and the zooms in between like Sicily's mouth as she speaks and then George's wide eyes and reaction. Like we sort of talked about last week with X-Men number four of just, these are just people talking, but it's great to look at. This is people talking and it's fun. It's it's stunning. And it's, everything is just, they're all so expressive. Um, and then when we get wider shots and we see more of a detail, the backgrounds are always just like insanely finely detailed. Like on the second page, there's like this small panel of uh, castle walls and half of the individual bricks are lined in it's really gorgeous yeah this is a comic that i think takes care to establish its like physical setting in the background paneling which i think in a series like this is especially important because if it's a historical drama you really have to sell you know that sort of change in time and setting by showing what that looks like and kano fully commits to that which, yeah, we get the name-dropping of Joan of Arc, which we'll get back to in a bit. And this discussion is interrupted by the oldest son, Edward, arrives to inform them that Richard is lost in the woods. And we get this really haunting scene where Richard is, like I said, he's the youngest, he's much younger. In this scene that takes place before most of the manga. He's a very small child in a little hood that's like obscuring his whole body combined with how it's inked. We never get like a full clear view of his face. Like we'll sometimes, depending on the panel, get an open mouth or like a single eye. But he's mostly just this really small shadowed child. And the way that he is moving about the scary woods emphasizing like how terrified he would be as a small child all alone they do just all these details on the gnarled branches of the trees and just like bending down almost as if they were reaching for richard and i don't know if i specifically said he's specifically lost in the woods at night so it's dark and scary and there's like beasts eyes illuminated in the shadows so think of whatever beasts might be there to potentially harm him this is that forest from Snow White that she gets lost in. Yeah. The, the Disney movie. It's like, it's that vibe. It's really... Only, I think this is actually slightly scarier. It's really well done. Oh, and, and the page before it, uh, it's made very clear that, like... Well, the implication is, Cecily says, It's not my fault that child let go of my hand himself. Like, he's not lost in the woods. She left him in the woods. Yeah. Yeah. Sicily's relationship with Richard is going to be really pivotal in that essentially the whole of the family thinks of Richard of one of, as one of them, except for Sicily. And it's not a matter of like step parentage or something like that. He is her son, but I guess I'll go ahead and just state it here. It's going to be inferred here soon throughout as we sort of cut back and forth between the woods scene and 
flashbacks to Richard's birth, but I've never read it in full, but I did some research up to this just to try and give myself a sense of the relationship between the works. But in the original Shakespearean drama, Richard III is like physically disfigured. Yeah. And in this manga, inspired by it, it's not that he's disfigured in the way that he is in the original, but his body is still very pivotal plot-wise and his identity is pivotal plot-wise because Richard is intersex. And I've been using he pronouns. I'm going to continue using them because through the entirety of the manga that I've read, which is all but the very end, 15 of 17 volumes have been localized. He consistently refers to himself as a man, uses male pronouns, and still struggles with some gender identity stuff, partially internally, but also as a matter of social standing, because essentially his status as intersex is kept secret because societally, to include his own mother, knowledge of it could lead to scorn to include many characters refer to him as a demon or as like a demon. And even those that don't know the truth often have sort of dialogue of being like, there's something different about him. And it's always the sort of specter of the potential harm and threats of revelation as something that Richard really has to contend with. And this is largely at the heart of why Cecily just has no love for her child and he is so outcast even by his own mom. Yeah, um, I think this is... Actually, I'm going to say, I think this is the first thing that I've actually read that has any intersex representation, so far as I'm aware and can remember. And yeah, in this case, it is replacing what I would say probably be, uh, if you did it now, a horrifically ableist disfigurement storyline with what is a really touching and emotional and, like... Because Richard III in the original, it, because Shakespeare was writing for the Tudors, is very much a villain. But this is from Richard's perspective. And the interiority here is just, it's amazing. And it's really well written and well executed. Yeah. It's so well written. It's so, I think, just intelligent in like the way that it works with the original text and what it changes and what it preserves thematically. And like you said, in the original, it's very much Richard as villain figure. And I think part of what makes this manga interesting, especially as it goes forward, is how it sort of contends with all of Richard's actions, coupled with his interiority and how we're supposed to feel about him. He's a very complex character that... This manga really just respects the reader's intelligence. It's just really good. But... Uh, to get back to the opening plot, the Richard abandoned in the woods mixed with flashbacks to the original birth feels very theater chorusy, where we just get all of these voices crying, Richard, 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 demon child. Were you abandoned by your mother? Of course you were. The day you were born, a terrible storm cut down the trees. The owl cried out, the night crow cried out, to tell the world that an age of misfortune had come. Your mother suffered so in labor, and what was born to wit, an indigested and deformed lump. Shall I tell your fortune, Richard? Some day, great numbers of the elderly who have lost their children, great numbers of widows, great numbers of orphans, they will lament the untimely deaths you bring about. They will cry and ask, why was he born? They will curse the day you were born. And in terms of visuals while this is happening, the main things of note here are the birthing scene has a young boy named Catesby is called to help, which is mainly important in establishing that Catesby is the only one outside of Richard's family who knows that he is intersex. And Catesby is Richard's most loyal retainer. So he's going to be a very important figure going forward. And beyond that, in the present, we have 
Richard being metaphorically entangled in all of these vines and thorns as he's lost in the woods. And we just have his crying form as this very small child is just surrounded by this hateful, like, prophecy of how much the world is going to hate the fact that he exists. Yeah. Um, and this is all just stunningly drawn as well. Um, it's, if you can hear anything in the background, just like last episode, my cats are here and they don't stop. Uh, my cats are some of the few cats who you really do get to experience on audio. Right now, Burns is being very cute, perched on top of his scratching post, looking out the window. And then Bronte is just meowing by your knee. Uh, that's Bronte after, uh, the Brontes, um, and Burns is after Robert Burns, the poet. We, um, have very literary cats. They're very well read. And they're very sweet. I was like, oh yes, the, um, the detail on these fucking rose vines is absolutely insane. I can't imagine how much time it took to do, like, them all tangled up around, um, the young Richard. And it's just getting across, like, the emotional core of it so well. Like, it's... The words and the visuals are, like, working together perfectly here. And you you get immediately pretty much all you need to about Cecily and about Richard and about their relationship. Um, and where it's going to keep going from here. Yeah. And after the shots of Richard entangled in vines and then a close-up on him crying, we get a short sequence of panels where Richard is now essentially just laying on the ground alone in a blank void white space where he is then approached first by a white boar a baby white boar and then a figure approaches as well and she's not named or explained here but later in the volume this is going to be the Joan of Arc character who is of major thematic importance that I'll talk about when she makes her big appearance to Richard after this. This essentially seems like a mixture of, like, the real-life scenes and also sort of, like, a dreamscape sort of thing of where does reality and where does Richard's dreams intersect and where does one stop into the other before we shift away from Richard's relationship with his hateful mother to his father, Richard II, who is essentially the light in Richard's life, who just really proudly proclaims Richard his son, gives him his own name, and even though we don't get a lot of scenes of Richard and the other Richard having extended conversations, it's just very clearly established how much the young Richard looks up to his father and how important this bond is. Yeah, I mean, the the immediate just, like, we will give this boy, my uh, this child, my name, Richard, my son. Um, and there's this amazing panel of, um, well, it wouldn't be baby, it's uh, of young Richard looking up, and he's got very long hair uh, down the front of his face. It's covering up one of his eyes. Um, I'm going to say it's like Violet in The Incredibles. <laughs> uh, staring up with just the most, like, hopeful and, and loving expression. And then we move on to uh, starting sort of the main plot of the book and the main plot of the original plays where uh, this is... It's not Kate... Is that Catesby Tonkin? No, that's not Catesby Tonkin. That's... Um, um, we have the Earl of Warwick. Oh, Earl of Warwick, thank you. Often just referred to as Warwick. Warwick. Talking to Richard... Uh, so, as you know, the throne, even now, so absurdly possessed by the House of Lancaster, was unlawfully usurped after they murdered their own lord, the rightful king. And my father, Richard, who gave me this name, was executed for the crime of treason. And because of that, you have long been deprived of your title, such bitter sorrow, but you have, al rest you have already restored that name, or rather... The blood in your veins has been more noble than that of the king from the beginning, because you are higher in the line of succession to the throne than the current king. Should I be king, Warwick? I swear to you on this white rose, as proof of my respect and affection for you, Warwick, before you now will most certainly make you king, your majesty, Richard. So, this is establishing Richard II is planning on waging war to become king of England, because... He, as so far as he is concerned, he is more inbred than the people in charge right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, 
this shit is so good and like obviously none of these people actually have a claim to any of their positions because the way their positions work is that you're born into it and you don't earn it or deserve it which therefore you can't deserve it but goddamn when it's done well as it's done here if a shakespearean power play cannot actually be badass i i really love uh, political dramas like this and um i hate monarchies in real life but when you do them in fiction and if you look at them in history they're really fucking dramatic because it mixes politics and family relationships and like every conflict is both political and personal which is what you get here and it's just such a good recipe for drama yeah it's a really perfect setup and shortly after this we get richard ii announces to his family his wife and his children the about the war that he is prepared to wage and we get the children embracing him including richard because again his father is the light of his life and we get sicily who has this exchange with the husband where she sees richard utters his name turns away the husband calls after her and she says i that child king richard cuts her off mid-sentence with a kiss then says say nothing i will take my soldiers and go to the royal palace and smite those lancasters with our authority when i return i will most certainly be in a position to rival that of the king and there's sort of an awareness and an acknowledgement that the elder richard knows there's something wrong with his wife's relationship with richard but he is very much going to look out for his son and isn't indulging his wife's hatred but another just really good example of the family dynamic is as the elder richard is getting up on horseback to leave and sicily is turning to the sons and saying let us pray for his safety edward george dot 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 and then there's a panel of richard and then there's a panel of sicily silence and then we see the turning of her eye as she looks away from him and just at the other two boys it's fucking heartbreaking i will say i this is my second ever manga um as listeners of the regular listeners will know um and i occasionally had a hard time following the layouts because i keep looking at them backwards (laughs) so there was like i had to look at this page like three times when i first read it because i kept reading it as her turning to look at him and then walking away but it's the other way around but it's such an effective emotional beat little little richard by the way is very tiny and very like round in a sort of kind of like like a newspaper comic character of a little round little child with the big eyes but then with just the most teenage goth hair i have seen on a child that tiny yeah like everything visually is reinforcing his stark difference from the rest of the characters even as a tiny child like the color palette where he's always wearing darker clothing and then the more unruly hair and just everything you just said like from narrative to visuals Iacono is letting you know how much of a struggle in Richard's life it is going to be the degree to which he feels outcast and separate from other people largely because he is consciously outcast specifically by his mother uh yeah but also simultaneously showing you how this is just like put on richard and not like anything richard has ever done anything to deserve which i think again i can't remember if i've ever read the play but i am i am like richard in the original is like the horrific monster that they fight to an extent if i'm remembering correctly I may be off about this, to be honest. I've not... It's been years since I actually read Shakespeare. He is definitely a villainous figure in it. Yeah, and this is such a sympathetic portrayal of technically the same character. Yeah, and this is getting ahead of where we'll get today, but I think one of the fascinating things about the arc of the series as a whole is the way to which he is the same character, and you watch him in many ways become monstrous like the dramatic figure dramatic as in 
drama, as in the play, and not being able to necessarily morally align with him, but to still feel sympathy with just how much interiority there is, and sort of balancing how much was put upon him versus what he chooses to do. It's just really good character writing. And then we cut to what looks to be, and turns out kind of to be, a older Richard engaging in battle. Um, so this would be, this is like teen Richard. Like, what, probably like 15, maybe? Yeah, I don't think there's ever a specific age. If there is, I don't remember it. I read him as probably being around like 16 or so, yeah. Yeah, um, but engaging in battle... Uh, there's definitely some heads being removed. And um, his father says, Men, this is in fact a wonderful victory, but there was one who proved himself most glorious in this battle, one born with the love of God and every chance of success, my son. At which point Richard wakes up and realizes that it was a dream. And so we are now with an aged up Richard who wakes up in the carriage and uh, looks largely the same, except obviously much older, but we still have that... Um, the hairstyle with the one eye covered and the dark clothes and like that still that visual difference from all the other characters um and he insists on being allowed to like ride ahead on a horse as his brother george did because he he's just wanting to be treated the same way that his brothers are yeah and he's specifically conversing with his retainer catesby who we mentioned earlier and he asks specifically why should I alone be in a carriage? Is it because I'm a child? Or is it because of this body? And Catesby just has sort of a silent expression, or <laughs> silent expression, is silent. And not even sure how to describe the expression on Catesby's face. But Catesby is very much in Richard's corner, but also has to straddle the, like, support with the like societal expectations of station for both of them lets richard have his way richard starts writing because in his desire to be like his father and make his father proud richard has been training to become very competent will continue to do so throughout the story and while out writing richard meets two pivotal figures these are anne neville who at this first appearance is a young girl. She is the daughter of Warwick from earlier, the king, or would-be king, Richard II's right-hand man, and then a white boar, the same white boar we saw in the dream. And Richard notices that the boar is injured, makes a line to Anne about how he'll present it for dinner that night, but in reality, he takes it to his room and is specifically bandaged it up and is helping to nurse this boar back to health. And there's not really immediate dialogue of it here in this scene, but this boar is going to be a very frequent returning character and visual signifier aligned with Richard himself. Uh, meanwhile, Anne is... Um, it doesn't happen in this volume, but you get the impression um, that she's going to become an important part of like the courtly drama aspects of the story. I would assume. Oh, yeah. 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 I'll avoid going specific for spoilers for you, but yeah. Um, and then we cut to, uh, well, more strange dream sequence stuff, I think is the best way of putting it. Um, the, the level of reality here is, is not really specified. Um, there's a lot of sequences in this where it's like, might be happening, might not, but this is the appearance of uh, Joan of Arc. As sort of stated earlier, a very like she's floating, she's flying, and um, as they, as the mother said earlier, she was you know uh, burnt at the stake. Was yeah, no, Joan was burnt at the stake uh, for the crime of wearing men's clothing. And this is where like no one in this is at the point in society where they would say intersex, but this is where like the specifics of it are revealed because Joan talks to Richard and says. You're not a boy. That said, you're not a girl either. It's specifically referencing his body. At which point she kisses him. And he accuses her of being a witch. Says, who are you? Realizes that this is Joan of Arc. And she sort of disappears. Again, the reality of this is very much in question. Yeah. And like, whether she's a real spirit or just 
this is a matter of like dream states for Richard. The thematic importance of it is the same either way where, you know, they're not one-to-one. Joan is not intersex. But it's bringing immediately to the page just societal expectations of gender and the body and what men versus women are and are allowed to do. And it's just... Again, I think just a really smart way of handling this conflict. And the thing is, like, it's still internal. Because even though Joan is her own character, in the way that it's largely just something that Richard is the only one able to see, whether because she's real or not, you know, like, even if you read her as an actual separate spirit, she's still the metaphorical embodiment of his own internal conflict, which in turn is spurned on by external societal pressures And it's all just this big, gigantic goop of, holy shit, he has had so much horrible shit thrust upon him that he had no choice in, and it's actually really sad. A quick design out here, she has slit pupils, like, cat's eyes, and it's just, like, a really cool visual that just, like, makes her seem a little bit more alien and, like, ghostly and spiritly, especially since, like, it's, again, it's a black and white manga, you can't really do, like... A lot of modern day comics, if they're doing a ghost, would like do some kind of effect with the colors to do that, but you don't have that here. So this is like a really cool, like, unreality aspect to the character. Yeah, and the visual presentation of this scene and of Joan's appearances in general is that the backgrounds become much more sparse, either entirely white or a very little specific physical detail, which makes it feel all the more otherworldly compared to how physically rooted most of the pages feel in other scenes you know we talked about like the castle walls earlier versus when joan appears it's almost as if richard has been ripped out of reality and is just in this ghostly space where joan can float around in ways that are just beyond physics yeah yeah i'll go ahead and start moving a bit faster through the plot for time reasons but essentially we get more of richard talking with his father richard specifically is very aggressively encouraging his father to continue with his attempted usurpation of the throne very important lines of inside that circlet lies paradise every delight and joy conceived of by the poets lies there why do you hesitate i cannot stand by patiently not until i have stained this white rose red with the blood of the king the king being the current King Henry. This is also, he's out of the cloak and is now in the armor that we described earlier most of the time and has been like very clearly training very hard um, and is filled with a desire to go and fight in his father's war. Yeah, it's very stark. Richard beginning to take on the sort of gothic, demonic visage that other characters will see in him. Um, The fact that he is encouraging and pushing his father into war. Pushing's probably too strong because it's not like he's convincing his father of something he wouldn't have done anyway. But the way in which this is viewed is going to be pivotal in how Sicily views him. And that she views him as pushing the rest of the family into ruin. And this sort of fervors her image of him as a dangerous demon. But at the same time, it's sort of something uniting the father and the son and their shared devotion to the goal. And meanwhile, we cut to the House of Lancaster, where in a series of pages, it's established that the king is very pious and prays. Like, we get introduced to him in front of a gigantic cross and asking himself, Lord, why must we fight? And meanwhile, his wife and his son do want to fight to uphold their social status and there's a sense that the mother uh the queen king henry's wife is the true military social might here that's insistent upon retaining their position and the son wants it because it's what he's been raised to think he's due and in a lot of ways they are going to be the real tactical villains while king henry himself wants no part of it and is more of a figurehead yeah and then um from a character point of view like it's very clear that like of course richard iii wants richard ii to be king richard ii is the only like parental figure that 
Richard has who treats him with any level of decency and he's essentially to a degree worships his fart. If you're wondering what that was, uh, it was my cat, so everything's fine. <laughs> He, he, like, clearly worships his father. Like, it makes sense that, like, if you ask, who would be a good king? Of course he's gonna answer his dad. It's very... He's a child. He's a child, and this father figure is one of the only people that has ever shown him kindness. And it's the only one that's an adult, like you said, a parental figure. Because, like, you could argue, like, Catesby and his brothers, but they're more peers versus... His father is just the shining light who gave him his name and tells him how proud he is and how he can't wait to bring the kingship home for him and for one day for them to be able to fight side by side. Yeah, yeah. So the characters have just worked so well. So then the, the second chapter opens with the execution and burning at the stake of Joan of Arc. Yeah, it's specifically in flashback. Not entirely clear, like, how long ago in the past, but certainly recently enough that she is a figure that all the characters are aware of. And it's essentially her enveloped in flame and effectively cursing them all. If I felt like it, I could Google the years in relation to each other that these events happened, because, yeah, but it's it's fine, it's fine. It's, it's recent enough that, like, it's still the same king who oversaw both this and... The death of Joan of Arc. Um, and so this is a flashback to Richard II being upset at the end of the war with France. Which, I'm trying to remember which one that is. Because there's so many that Joan of Arc was from. Maybe the 500 Years War? I have no idea about European history. I, I'm more familiar with Tudor stuff than I am with the, the stuff that came shortly before them. So, write in if I'm wrong. I'm gonna say 500 years war. That sounds right in my head at this moment. The research I did was reading this book. To be fair, this is a very well thought out and written book. The <laughs> writer did the research. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, this is clearly part of the source of why Richard II is so angry with the throne and wants it for himself. I would say, like, for political reasons, he's specifically upset. Have any idea how many nobles and soldiers have died in the fight? And King Henry says, Those who serve the same God brutally murdering each other, it is a show of impiety to God. And then we cut to the present, where the family is marching to war, and uh, Richard II says to Richard III that he's come far enough and he's still too young to sacrifice his life in battle. And he specifically says, Carry on my name, the name of the king. Yeah. There's a... a close-up panel of both of them looking into each other's eyes for like this really serious moment um and it's just like the the degree to which richard is clearly taking all of this in um is just really clear yeah we then get more cuts to the other family the lancasters more just queen margaret arguing for husband who is pious wants no part of it and Meanwhile, Richard is upset about not being allowed to go to war because he's quote-unquote a child, and he's flashing back to the Joan of Arc dreams, and he's angrily ripping aside portions of his clothing, and we get a really dramatic shot of his reflection with his bare chest in the reflection of a mirror, and it's really haunting for the expression on his face. Of just his utter, I suppose just pain, like, I can't really describe in words the expression that he has, but it's just utter frustration of everything that's culminated for him, of all the various hardships that he never asked for, of just the family he's grown up in, and the status of his body and everything. And during this, his retainer, Catesby, comes in, specifically says, your body is precious, which is another example of one of the few characters who cares for Richard and is kind to him, and it's going to be more important going forward than it is specifically in this volume. But then the pig also approaches the white boar from earlier, and Richard says, misshapen pig, just like me, further reinforcing the bond between those two going forward. And shortly after this, in the midst of the war, while... Richard II is away, Richard III in their home, 
is ransacked and he and his brothers well his brother george the eldest brother is old enough to be at war but he the mother sicily and the middle brother george are all imprisoned while war is being raged against them by the lancasters and they get held in this cell like dungeon cell and while they're down there richard sees the boar pushing its way inside, like moving aside a piece of rock or whatever on the the ground. Yeah, the tile floor that it has. Yeah, like brushing it aside, coming from underneath, showing that there is a hidden passage of some sort, which Richard then uses to make his way out of the castle and into nearby woods, where we have... A really pivotal meeting between Richard and an older man with angelic white hair, really gentle expressions, and Richard's not sure who this man is. He asks him what he's doing, and the man is making a sundial, and he says, One by one, and then you watch each minute pass. How many of those make an hour, a day, a year? How many years pass to make a person's life? I think about that. And the man tells Richard that he is a shepherd. And the quote-unquote shepherd keeps describing just daily facets of life. Of like taking care of livestock and a simple life just in harmony with nature essentially. And he gleefully declares that a shepherd is far happier than a king. And far better than a crown or anything like that. For instance, I am happier to have been able to meet you here now. You being him referring to Richard. And Richard is fighting it all a bit. Like, he of course thinks that the crown and the kingship is very important. But it's this beautiful scene of the shepherd, quote-unquote, and Richard together, alone in this beautiful canopy area of the woods. And they each need to go and get back to what they're doing. The shepherd asks for Richard's name. Richard refuses. He says, I don't need to tell someone I'll never see again. To which the shepherd says, then you'll tell me the next time we meet. And we get these panels of interiority from the shepherd saying, now I must get back to my sheep. But it's over top a panel of like cityscape and... Essentially, what's happened is that Richard has met the King of England, not knowing who it is, and they both feel very drawn to each other as people who are very unhappy with their stations in life, but have an instant, to be just frank, romantic and sexual longing towards each other from the moment they meet between Richard and the King who he wants his father to kill to get the crown. Yeah. Yeah, specifically the uh, the the recurring line, there is paradise in the light of that crown, the light of that circlet comes back, and like the way that Richard sees this and the way that Henry sees this, because it's, it's Henry, and the, just the huge contrast between like their goals and what they actually want out of life, but where they are right now. This is really powerful stuff. It's also gorgeously drawn, again, just stunningly well drawn. This is a very, uh, unlike a lot of the rest of this, uh, it's a very, like, calm and uh, quiet, like, nature place. There's lots of, like, fallen leaves and trees that are still filled with leaves and don't look creepy and frightening. And there's no, like, it's just, there's, yeah, well, there's there's this one page of, like, shepherds uh, with a flock of sheep. And it's so detailed and so, like, lovingly drawn. Yeah, no, this is, it's... (laughs) (laughs) it's beautiful and like even the panel of like henry surrounded by the lines on the ground of the sundial it's like a heavenly crown around him unto itself and everything is just reinforcing everything where like their expressions are different the clothing is different you know like richard the figure and all goth black garb versus henry with the feather white hair, his white top, um, just very, I guess, just more shepherdy clothing than like the armor that Richard has on. 
and they specifically ask each other, they have a conversation where they talk about nightmares and dreams of being abandoned by mothers. And Henry says, still in the end, always God will save us. And Richard interiority is thinking, my light isn't God. Father, please, if you're gone, I won't be able to go on living because there's just the threat of the war and, of course, the threat to his father's life, that means. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, this series has an anime adaptation. My short description is that it is good and that the writing is very good and it's very faithful and they try to keep as much in as they can, although they do have to cut some stuff for time, but they do as good as they can. But its main con is the budget and the animation. Just know that going in. The animation is horrible. But the writing and a lot of the music is so good, it still carries it. And this meeting in episode one is so striking. And the music they play combined with the visuals just makes it feel literally magical. As these two meet, not knowing who each other is in the midst of the war. And that truly just as good as Shakespeare gets sort of scene. Yeah, it makes me wonder if anything like this is in the original plays. I'm gonna assume no, because they Shakespeare tends to be a lot more literal than this. Like, when a ghost shows up, there's, there's actually a ghost there, usually. Yeah, I think by this point in the original plays, Henry would already be dead, which, don't quote me on that. Like I said, I've only done light research. I might be misremembering, but... Certainly the emphasis on this pseudo-unnamed, they-don't-even-fully-grasp-how-they're-feeling romance between the characters. Like, this is pretty unique to the manga. There's more of Cicely telling the other children how evil Richard is, yada yada yada. And then just, like, gonna skip through largely for time, but just a lot of emphasis on the king's holiness... Margaret being more devoted to the throne, etc., etc., etc. His complete disinterest in, like, the dances they brought in. Yeah, like, specifically, like, meant to be very, like, sexy entertainment, and he is a man of the Bible and the cross, and he does not want any part of it. And through rumors passing, it gets to Henry's child, the prince, that there is some sort of secret about Richard's body, and... Before we get much more of that, Richard sneaks out again to meet up with Henry again. Just more beautiful paneling under that canopy of them talking together. And it's sort of the interplay of what they really mean and what they're telling each other. Where Henry says, Maybe that would be best if I could be welcomed into the bosom of the Lord like this if my death could save everyone. And then Richard, not knowing who he is, goes, what impact would the death of a mere shepherd have on the world? At which point, Henry just, like, realizes, because, of course, Richard doesn't know who he is, embraces him, laughing, says how much he likes him. I'm just a shepherd, that's right. Richard begins to cry, shows vulnerability in a real way for the first time says that he doesn't want to die because he couldn't go to heaven if he did, because he's a demon child whose mother doesn't love him, which then triggers a flashback to Henry as a child seeing his mother committing adultery, and just the emphasis on how much these are two characters who were raised as children in royal families, thrust into things they didn't understand, and just how much that fucks a few psychologically, like, we get these panels of the young Henry as a very tiny child being thrust onto the throne with these long, like, inhumanly long arms stretching from off-panel, putting him on the throne, giving him his crown and scepter, and just disembodied voices telling him how he should act as king and be majestic, and in the present, Henry and Richard exchange names and Henry asks him to be his friend, and Richard's very happy, very emotionally raw in a way he's never been, at which point the vision of Joan of Arc returns to haunt him, snapping Richard out of it, and Richard essentially stomps away angrily. Well, specifically, I, 
does he realize here that who Henry is specifically, or does he just not? Well, he doesn't know at this point. Yeah, he still doesn't know for sure, but he does say Henry. It is a loathsome name to even say as he leaves. So at this point, um, they're still imprisoned by the Lancasters, and Prince Edward comes in and basically has heard the rumors, the demon child rumors, and says he's heard from the guard, and that the proof of that is in that body. It's a very frightening scene uh, where Edward has, well, he's holding Richard at knife point, and then Richard is chained up, um, so there's not going to be anything he can do. But uh, luckily, before he can do anything, um, Edward is interrupted, which gives Richard the chance to fight back. And, um, it's very satisfying after just how threatening Edward had been just, like, earlier a page ago. But Edward gets knocked down. Basically, Richard's able to use his chained-up hands to hit him in the head a bunch. Simple as that. Yeah. And just dramatic back and forth. We get the line, If you hate heaven, then feast in hell. And plot-wise, it's notable going into future volumes that... Edward has now seen Richard's chest, which is going to lead Edward to think that the secret of Richard's body is that he thinks Richard is a woman. So it's a misconception, but it's furthering the plot element of Richard's status as intersex and how that's going to play into just the political intrigue and sort of like political warfare of how his identity is treated Fortunately, like you said, Richard is able to fight back. He ends up running away from there, and as he's doing so, the timing is such that his older brother has arrived, and they are liberating the castle of the Lancasters. Um, And they specifically managed to rescue uh, Cecily and George earlier, um, and they've regained the the armies occupying the capital. It looks like they've won. So we see Henry and uh, the Queen interacting and henry's given up and doesn't want to fight anymore and is perfectly willing to abdicate the throne um but the queen is going to go ahead and command the army okay so they're going to go ahead and um richard's being left behind again um as edward is going back to join uh warwick's army yeah and henry continues to just be a figurehead is staying away from the war planning meetings and is praying while Margaret is determined to never allow the Yorks to take the throne again. And ultimately, the Yorks manage to kidnap the King Henry and essentially force him to relinquish his right to the throne at the threat of death. And he officially, just by saying it, because that's how it goes, I guess, as they just state that they're giving their godly power away, he gives away the power of the kingship. Well, if the word is law, that makes it law. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so they do that, but Margaret has no acceptance of that. Like, it hasn't fully been accepted by, like, the rest of the governing bodies and the nobles yet so it's still a period of high tension and they're going to have more bloodshed and warfare with margaret and her allies and uh richard the elder is getting ready to head back into battle richard begs to go out with them says he won't be a hindrance and sicily comes in and killed me with her perfect crocodile tears is saying Please, please don't. Don't take my little Richard away. I know that someday this child, too, will go into battle, but this slim body still needs the arms of its mother. Hear this plea of a foolish woman. Have pity on this woman who cannot have the noble soul of a man. And Richard II relents, tells Richard III to stay and protect his mother. And then once the king is out of earshot... Sicily violently grasps a Richard's head and says, Richard, I will never let you go of your father. Your presence will bring his death. Your worlds will become a curse to destroy people. You are a filthy demon spawn, and so you cannot live without eating the souls of people. Oh God in heaven, I will protect everyone from this demon. Since I gave birth to it, that will be my penance. She's a horrible mother. 
of all the horrible people in this manga, she may be the worst, or she at least the, the one who is most hateable. I almost understand the queen, the not Cecily queen, whatever her name was again, more than I like can get with Cecily. Like at least that lady is like locked in a loveless marriage and like determined to hold her societal place. Um, Cecily is kind of both of those things and also hateful towards her own child. Yeah, Cecily is just horrific child abuse. That That's all that's happening. That's, that's her character, is to just be, like, you know, Richard's intersex status has him at threat from society at large. But, like, Cecily is, like, the embodiment of all of it and all the more painful because of the familial bond or lack thereof. The look on his face when she initially um, embraces him it's like this just moment of like disbelief and then the he seems to relax for a second and almost buys it before she turns and it's just so cruel yeah it's horrific after this point there's not very much of the volume left the main event really of note is that margaret's forces encounter richard the seconds and we get some flashback interludes of just more brief moments um, of the two Richards bonds as Margaret's forces attack. And it's going in Margaret's way. Would-be King Richard II's retainers and followers are telling him that he has to flee and they'll risk their lives to protect him. And he says, Letting all his people die and fleeing alone, that is not the way of a king. I swore I would not retreat. I will have the crown or the glory of death. And after just a few pages of bloodshed accent scenes, him cutting off limbs, slicing necks, marching towards Margaret on horseback in the distance, we get just him beginning to fall down. His strength is being lost he has been injured as he continues to repeat a king does not retreat i will not retreat and internally he's thinking on this name richard i swore it to you and the last page of volume one is richard on his knees richard the second the elder on his knees with i count i believe five spears piercing his body in different parts yeah if you've seen lord of the rings this is um when boromir dies at the end of the first movie it's like that where he's just being hit and hit and keeps on getting back up and going until finally it's just too much there's a really touching part of the flashbacks where um it's flashback to christmas because he's uh this battle is happening at christmas Uh, So it's a flashback to, like, the tiny baby, very young Richard with um, his father at Christmas passing under the mistletoe. And uh, older Richard explains, You see, Richard, it's the custom that people who pass under these branches must kiss anyone nearby. Little baby's like, Really? Perhaps mother would also do that for me? And Richard the Elder, lying, but very sweetly lying, says, Of course she would. But it's also the custom that you must do it more than 12 times. I'll go first. And it's clearly like peppering uh, baby Rich's face with kisses. Like they have a very loving and affectionate relationship. And it's very clear that this is just... Yeah. Uh, The character stuff going from earlier. It's this continuous through line. And and reading this, Richard the Elder dying is... um, Well, it's going to send Richard the Younger down a very dark path i think especially since he discovers that his mother's put him in the tower while the war is being fought and he discovers from the guard that king henry is also in the tower um and demands to be allowed to go and kill him and he just wants to kill him for his father but they uh, are not allowed to let him out of his room um and this yeah like at a wild guess he's gonna get a little murdery going forward there might be a little bit of murder in this series. That's... A little bit. <laughs> um, I fucking loved this. This was great. Everyone, you should read this. Highly recommend. I'm glad to hear that. Um, 
I chose it for multiple reasons. One being that I love it, which is the main reason that I pick almost anything I pick. And then beyond that, you know, it's relatively timely with the anime having just wrapped up. And genre-wise, I thought it would be utterly unlike anything else we had covered, you know? And I figured that regardless of how much you liked it or didn't like it, I figured there'd at least be something to discuss there. And that, you know, I have not read very many literal Shakespearean comics, which is to say, this is the one, and it's so good. I'm sure there's some, like, YA adaptations for kids to read, which, um... Like, this isn't the original Shakespearean dialogue or anything like that, but, like, having it as a comic helps do... helps replace, like, the performance aspect. Like, I talked earlier about how I never understood why people read Shakespeare plays. That's because a play script isn't really a finished work of art. A play script is an outline on what to do for a play. And Shakespeare didn't intend for people to read the script and for that to be the way they engage with the material. But, like, when you adapt Shakespeare, either by performing the plays or by making a comic or a movie or something like that, I tend to really love the result, and this is just so well executed. And I really cannot stress how gorgeous the art is. Oh my god. My cat is now screaming war cries as he runs around the room. He is very cute. He is charging into battle with a small felt mouse. It's very cute. But yeah, I'm glad you liked it. Um, the first 15 volumes are out in English. There's 17 total. I have loved it up through volume 15. I suspect the ending will be good too. Highly recommend. I don't know that I'll actually pick later volumes for the podcast, just in the interest of keeping up a variety of stuff but it is highly recommended uh yeah i um i plan on borrowing those from you (laughs) yeah uh looking forward though would you like to go ahead and introduce the topic for next week uh so next week we will be reading um superman confidential one through five and eleven um this it's normally connected as superman kryptonite uh, spoiler alert with how timing and recording things have already read them. It's good. Check it out because it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so read it, come back next week and listen to us talk about it. Press, 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 press.